Thank you, Mr. Wilson. In the interest of time, as we're expecting another vote series, we'll move directly to witness testimony. Without objection, all members may have five days to submit statements, questions, and extraneous materials for the record, subject to the length limitation in the rules. Chairman Deutsch, uh, Ranking Member Wilson, members of the subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you here today on Libya's conflict. I join you as someone who's been visiting the country for nearly a decade and interviewed most of the key players, including the man at the center of the conflict, Khalifa Heftar. During repeated trips to Tripoli, I've also felt Libyans' frustrations at the Government of National Accord, or GNA, and I've seen the misery inflicted by the militias that are nominally aligned to that government. What these trips underscored is that there is no black and white in Libya, no easy fixes, and attempts to pick a savior or a winner have always backfired. Mr. Chairman, the current fighting is partly the outcome of exclusionary politics, economic corruption, and unresolved fractures going back to the 2011 revolution. Welcome back to Libya Matters. Thank you so much for your support so far. It's been amazing receiving feedback and comments and ideas for future episodes. We will definitely be taking them on and we're looking forward to getting even more from you. In this episode, we try to unpick US policy in Libya. We look back and try to break down what happened at the Committee of Foreign Affairs Congressional hearing in May this year. And we think about whether US engagement can be positive. To do that, we have with us Frederick Wary, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and author of The Burning Shores, Inside the Battle for the New Libya. Enjoy the episode and keep your comments coming. Welcome back to Libya Matters. I'm on my own this week, uh, looking at some very juicy international questions. Uh, We've discussed international actors and their role in Libya quite a bit on the podcast so far. But what has been quite interesting is that the role of the United States in that hasn't really featured as prominently as would normally be when we're talking about intervention. We all remember that Obama very famously said that not planning for the day after in Libya was the worst mistake of his presidency. Many see that that perhaps led to the what appears to be a US detachment on Libya or a distancing from Libya. And whether that's a blessing or whether it's something that's actually needed is often open to debate. Increasingly, there are people who are calling for a greater role for the US in bringing the current conflict and fighting to an end and to help move Libya towards a constitution and electoral process. This is met with skepticism because it's difficult to think of many examples in recent history where the the U.S.'s involvement has led to that. But it's something that needs to be looked at. A step towards defining the U.S. policy was the, the recent congressional hearing in May, which was part of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the U.S. looking at the question of the Libyan conflict and what U.S. policy could be doing about that. As someone who's not a policy expert and is certainly not an expert on U.S. policy, but is aware of the consequences those might have on the rule of law in Libya, I'm really excited to be trying to unravel this today, uh, to understand better the purpose of a congressional hearing and what it means, and also to explore how the U.S. might be able to contribute positively in Libya, especially in the context of accountability and the rule of law. To help me do that is uh, Frederick Wary, who is far better equipped to unravel these points than I am. He's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. His history with Libya goes further than the current conflict, which is quite rare in people who profess to be experts on Libya. So he first visited Libya as a military officer to the U.S. Embassy back in the Gaddafi era and also returned in 2011. Uniquely, he spent quite a lot of time with both the LNA forces and the forces aligned to the GNA. So I think that's a unique perspective that we would hope to hear more from. And most recently was a witness at the congressional hearing I mentioned. So thank you so much, Fred, for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, and you have to acknowledge that I will be asking some very basic questions because I'm trying to understand um, how the U.S. system 
kind of works. And also, I think a lot of our, our audience will be very interested in understanding that. So if we start with this hearing, because it, it got a lot of attention in Libya and internationally as you know, it's quite an engaged conversation. But maybe before we talk about the content of the hearing, we can just understand of what is a congressional hearing? How often do they happen? Are they important? Are they tokenistic? Just a lot of box ticking for me to understand whether we should put hope on this process or just think it's a cute chat. <laughs> I, I, congressional hearings are, are an important part of the, the policy process. Congress has an important role to play in holding the executive branch uh, to accountability. Um, hearings uh, in this case on Libya there I think it was it was scheduled I mean there was a hearing in 2018 on Libya at in roughly the same month and I've participated I think in uh, you know five or six hearings since 2012 um, so Libya has has been a part of, of Congress's interest uh, congressional hearings are supposed to solicit uh, information advice. They're a chance for the members of Congress to air their positions. They are, of course, by nature, very partisan. And so in some cases, some hearings I've been in on the Senate, especially incredibly partisan. And so the questions that you get as a witness are not necessarily designed to to illuminate an issue, but are part of a member's uh, sort of game that they're playing with other members. And it's very, very partisan. And of course, with the, a topic like Libya, with the Benghazi issue, it, it becomes incredibly partisan. Um, so, so this this particular um, hearing, of course, came at a critical time after the start of the war in Tripoli. And by the account of all the, the witnesses, my my fellow panelists, uh, the questions were, were very um, detailed, well informed, and that shows that there's important work being done by staffers. So we have to remember that the members of Congress they've got so many issues on their plate. They've got domestic issues, they've got other foreign policy crises, and they depend on their staff to reach out to experts, to meet with Libyans that come into town. In some cases, they travel to countries. Of course, they're not going to Libya, but they do go to Tunis to try to uh, solicit input. And then they inform uh, the members' questions during during the hearing. And so the, I think the discussion was you know, fairly detailed, very, very nuanced. So what was the most interesting question you got? Um, th there were some detailed questions about, um, at least from my perspective, about the LNA or Heftar's chances of, of actually succeeding in this campaign. They, they wanted to know how has he uh, executed previous military campaigns? How does he build alliances? You know, does he have, really have an army? And that, that suggests to me that they've got a real granular understanding of, of the mechanics of how this works. So. What was interesting as well is that I think, I think the chairman of the hearing said that U.S. policy on Libya was, quote, confused, inconsistent, and counterproductive. This this came in the aftermath of the the infamous Trump uh, phone call to uh, Khalifa Heftar on the sixth of April, and of course, it sent mi mixed signals. And the and the Congress pointedly asked the panelists, you know, can you explain this? And we all kind of gave this deer in the headlights look, like we we don't know where this came from. We can speculate. It was it was odd. I mean, in some cases, they asked me, you know, what was behind this? And I, you know, in that case, you dodge the question. It's just speculation. I'm reading like, you know, but it was clear that they were they were puzzled. Um, it sent the, the Trump phone call, I think, sent a very uh, uh, disastrous and unhelpful you know, shockwave across Libya. It empowered certain actors. It, it helped regional meddlers. And so the Congress, I think, was trying to, to you know, pick apart that statement and, and what did it mean for U.S. policy and how do we get past it? You know, how do we clarify it? 
And was it seen as part of U.S. policy? Or was it seen as an anomaly? They, I, I believe they thought it was coming out of left field, that it didn't serve U.S. interests. But, uh, you know, my, my analysis is that it wasn't so much of a 180-degree, you know, turn because the U.S., and including the State Department, for like the last year, two years before this conflict, was generally warming to General Heftar. They believed he could be brought into the process, that he could be dealt with. There wasn't a, a complete dismissal of the GNA, but there was ch a, a chilling of relations with the GNA. And they, uh, senior State Department officials said, you know, that there's some silver lining in Heftar's uh, operation in the Fazan that, you know, maybe this is a wake-up call to the GNA and it can, it can sort of shock them into getting past this transitional period. How do we use this? And sort of this, let's deal with Heftar. And then, of course, this huge upset with this attack on Tripoli. So um, I think the Trump phone call was, you know, a very public uh, crystallization of something that has been brewing in the U.S. government for quite some time. We have to remember that Heftar has had supporters in the U.S. government uh, from the intelligence community, from the special operations community, going back to 2014, that, yes, this guy is a problem for human rights, his ways are brutal, but you know what, he is going after some bad guys, and let's see what we can do with this. So should we talk about the bad guys that he's going after and how strong or how true that narrative is? Well, that, that was interesting because the Congress was asking that question, like, you know, who, who are the bad guys? Are there quote unquote terrorists within the GNA forces? What's, you know, and some, there was one Congress uh, man who, who had clearly been reading some reports saying, you know, there's Ansal Sharia fighting on the front line with, with the Siraj government's GNA. And so they were, you know, but I think the general consensus of um, the panelists, and of course, based on my last trip when I went to the front lines, is that this Islamist boogeyman is vastly inflated. The terrorist dimension, of course, in, in uh, Tripoli is, is also exaggerated, fictionalized. Of course, there are corrupt mafia-like militias, but then again, the LNA, as we know, is its own corrupt machine as well. So this entire narrative is part of a, a discourse that's been promoted by Heftar's supporters and also his Gulf enablers. And I think the, we certainly highlighted that during the, the congressional hearing. Again, looking at the mechanics of the hearing, because one of the rumors a lot that we're sort of milling about is, oh, how come this is coming around now? Who's behind it? Who's funding this? And obviously from what you've suggested is that this happens boringly, predictably once a year, and it happened to coincide with the conflict this time, which made it more interesting for people to follow. Yeah. Um, but if you looked at sort of the, at a lot of the coverage that we've seen on like Libyan pages, it's all, oh, you know, this has been funded by certain people and these, co these congressmen are... Yeah, so a lot of that narrative, I think, stemmed from the fact that the, the questioning and the discussion in the hearing, by and large, centered on the, the culpability of, of the person who launched this operation, the conduct of the LNA, the phone call to Heftar. So there was this narrative that, oh, it was all about Heftar, you know, and you never, you never addressed the issue of the corrupt militias in Tripoli. And I would urge people who, who say that, who adopt that line, go back to the hearing in April 2018 and look at my testimony and look at other people's testimony. And we talk at length about the corrupt militias, the letters of credit, that this is a train wreck, that people are fed up with the GNA about the corrupt militias in Tripoli. So we covered that in 2018. The, the Congress was interested in that. This hearing was you know, by nature, bipartisan. So you had Republicans and Democrats 
saying what Heftar has done is not a good thing, and so it was focused on Heftar. So now because of that focus on Heftar, there were all sorts of uh, theories about who was behind this. There's a saying that, you know, victory has a thousand fathers. This, this congressional hearing was successful, and so there were multiple lobby groups, organizations that said, you know, we were the ones that, that uh, got the Congress to do this. Mm -hmm to include Libyan-American lobby groups, American groups, I won't name them, to include a, um, a lobby firm that was hired by the GNA saying we were the ones that did this. There was uh, NGOs, like uh, I won't name them, that said, yeah, we, we were the ones. And so I think multiple people had inputs and were meeting with staffers before this hearing to inform it, but nobody was responsible for the decision to hold the hearing, um, and nobody was responsible for the direction. The staffers that write the questions are smart people, and they're, they're independent. The um, notion that uh, donations to a, a Congress member could somehow inform their position is ludicrous, because I met with the particular congressional member before this hearing, um, Tom Malinowski, and he is committed to human rights. He's met Heftar in the 2011 revolution. He has his own views. And so this is, I think, an insult to, to their intelligence to suggest that a check of $1,000 somehow informed their... Was it just that amount? Was it... What was the amount? It was some... It was uh, in the thousand. Yeah, I believe it was what was reported. Well, what is being reported in this these narratives is it, it was um, the amount of money that would basically buy you a lunch in D.C. You know, so, <laughs> so and so this sort of campaign donation to suggest that it infl you know it, it's ludicrous. So again, I really I really want to underscore I think uh, uh, the independence that I sensed of the the questions and and the other thing is when I've met with staffers after this hearing. They're following up on the war. They're asking, I think, very well-informed questions. They're asking, you know, questions that suggest a real um, depth and independence of, of thinking. One thing I did notice in the in the hearing was the lack of Libyan voices in the in the witnesses. Is that normal to have an entirely all all of them were American, right? That's unfortunate. No, no, and I um, I noted that I. Um, I don't know if that's structural. Of course, it may have to do with the unfortunate um, visa system, but it is it is a glaring, I think, omission. And um, I've I've suggested it, of, of course, highlighted, of course, to staffers. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's a real a real issue. Um, how how do witnesses get chosen? Do you do the staffers do their research and just pick people, or do you put yourself forward as someone who's uh, knowledgeable? Should they need an expert on Libya? How does it actually? They work? they will pick you, um, you know, based on your your writings, your expertise, what you've what you've put out there. In some cases, in in very partisan hearings, they the um, because each party um, is is allotted a witness um, based on whoever dominates that particular committee. So the majority gets, if it's a majority, they'll get two seats. The minority gets one one panelist. So it's in some cases, the, the choice is purely partisan. So I've been on panels where the witness is is uh, drawn from a particular you know Republican, conservative. It's clear that it's purely ideological. The person is not actually informed on Libya. They can sort of spend so it's more ideological to, to accommodate that particular party's views. I think there's awareness on the Hill that the Libyan uh, American community is very divided, that you know there's partisan, that when the various organizations come to the Hill, they're presenting you know, one side. So that has to take, be factored into account too. You know, can you, can you get a Libyan witness that can 
reliably deliver a particular you know account that isn't skewed toward one side and so this this may have informed their thinking but I, I think it's it is it's a real omission to not have a Libyan on the panel okay so now we've had the hearing we chose our witnesses in whatever way we chose them that's happened what happens next so we've got this what seemed like a really lively discussion very engaged very informed and then we haven't heard much after that so what happens next after something like that there, there is follow-up. I mean, the, um, of course, the hearing was an opportunity for uh, Congressman Tom Malinowski to submit the bipartisan letter to the Attorney General and the FBI Director um, asking them to investigate Khalifa Haftar for war crimes because he's a U.S. citizen. So that was a, a follow-up. Um, I don't know. This is a good point. I don't know what happened to that letter. The, those of us that were... Um, supportive of that letter have been asking where where is it going there has been some introductions um, of other bills um, into the National Defense Authorization Act that would require uh, more clarity from the administration on its Libya policy to include highlighting violations of the arms embargo so there has been follow-up um, in terms of legislation there's there's been follow-up from staffers they called me back after my trip, and they met with me, um, a large gathering of staffers um, from both the House and the Senate, which was unusual to have that number of staffers. So there's, there's follow-up. I mean, the wheels, the wheels are slowly churning. Um, did it, of course, impact the Trump administration's thinking? It, to my knowledge, no, um, unfortunately. But it's an important, you know, I think it's an important uh, accountability mechanism. It keeps the issue in the policy discussions. Um, and it's an important part of our of our process. And you mentioned after your trip, that's your trip to Tripoli. Did anything that you see in that trip make you think again about your testimony at the hearing? Or do you feel that it, it reaffirmed what you were calling for? It, it reaffirmed. Um, I mean, the I think the real um, travesty of this, one of my co-panelists um, is, a, is a policy director for Mercy Corps, and she, she gave a very compelling testimony on the humanitarian crisis. And when I was in Tripoli, I, I saw it firsthand. I mean, the, the, in, the lengthy blackouts, the, uh, I mean, just, just the real the suffering of the displaced. The airstrikes on civilian um, homes, the, the, the border, the boundary between civilian areas and the conflict zone has collapsed. So again, the, I mean, the airstrikes were a real problem. So it just, it just underscored that this is a mounting humanitarian crisis. And then, of course, we had the tragic strike on the Tajura um, Center. And no, I mean, I, I suggested, I mean, I didn't suggest, I, I um, implored the Congress to, to take punitive steps or sanctions on the, the behavior of the LNA before it escalated. And now, I mean, how long are we going to wait? Now we're seeing airstrikes. On, you know, so, so again, we're letting this play out. And so we haven't, you know, held these actors to, to account, to include both sides. Um, some other things that were highlighted, I think the sense among the GNA forces of U.S. policy incoherence of some sense of abandonment, you know, you've you've left us. Um, you know, we helped you on the counterterrorism fight. Again, these were the forces that received U.S. assistance during the battle against the Islamic State. Insert, they feel that uh, this is a sort of betrayal that you know Trump is now supporting Heftar, and yet we helped you. So there's this, I think, underlying you know grievance there. Um, the the narrative of extremists fighting within the GNA forces. Again, I traveled all across the front line. 
and I met fighters from Benghazi, and the of course there are some bad apples there, but the narrative of actual Islamic extremists on the front, I think, was is non-existent. The individuals that we're aware of, some of them had left the front, some of them had went to Turkey, some of them were wounded. So there was this sense among the GNA that we don't want these kind of guys fighting in our ranks. We're sensitive to that image, and I think that's important as well. So one of the things I think that came across was um, you've, you've been putting forward this idea that the U.S. has a unique a unique opportunity now in Libya as and unique leverage, I think, is the term used in Libya, that to some degree the U.S. is still viewed as neutral. Yes. I'm interested in that. So we obviously, as in, uh, in the kind of work we do, we monitor a lot um, what's happening at the U.N. Security Council, etc. And I wouldn't say that the U.S. at the Security Council level has been particularly neutral when we're looking at the kind of resolutions and the, ops, and the kind of obstacle that they've presented to passing a resolution that condemns what's happening in Tripoli. No, that's that's the unfortunate. No, 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 of course, I agree with you. Our, our behavior, our actual policy has been, I mean, blatantly one-sided. No, no, but I, I meant the the perception of, of U.S. policy um, before this conflict started. There, uh, there was a sense among Libyans that we did enjoy some even-handedness and credibility in Libya, again, before this started, um, compared, compared to the French and the Italians and the um, Egyptians and the Emirates, that we could play an important um, arbitrating role, mediating role, that, that you know, the, the disunited European powers, the various Gulf and Arab powers, if we were to somehow come in and show some diplomatic muscle, we might be able to forge a, a regional and European consensus around Libya. This was the thinking, I think, over the past you know, two to three years that um, we alone have have that capability. Now, are, do we have the magic wand? I think Libyans exaggerate, you know, the potency of U.S. power over some of our Arab powers, Arab allies, you know. And well, I mean, we saw the lack of that in the Saudi context and Khashoggi, like the inability of the U.S. to really influence that process. And so for me, it's kind of, I don't know if it's us just clutching at straws to think that a, the U.S. has the political will to get engaged in Libya in any substantive way. Yes, well, we could talk about that. No, there's the, so there's the issue of will and then our actual policy capability. So the, the problem has always been one of will. Going back to the aftermath of the 2011 revolution, where there was a conscious decision by the Obama administration to not own the problem. It was, it was not a problem of planning. It was not a problem of our capability. We've done post-conflict reconstruction, but will. We did not want to own this. We said the UN and the Europeans should do that. That reticence has continued to the Trump administration. Of course, it's been, um, I think, intensified by this this partisan notion that that uh, Libya is Hillary Clinton's mass, it's Obama's mass, why should we own this? And it's the Europeans and the general disinterest of Trump to do sort of engagement, nation building, the definition of Libya's importance to U.S. interests very narrowly in terms of counterterrorism. Uh, Trump has increased the number of drone strikes in Libya when he came into office. The general reticence of, of using diplomacy as a tool in U.S. foreign policy, all this combined um, has really, I think, intensified the U.S. ambivalence you know, about, about Libya. So there's that lack of will. The capability, I think we do have unique leverage among uh, the Arab states, among Gulf partners. If you remember in 2015, at the height of some of the Gulf meddling in Libya when they were conducting airstrikes, sending in weapons, Obama conven convened a meeting of Gulf leaders at Camp David and he said, knock it off. You know, stop using Libya as an arena for your proxy battles. 
there was some result to that in the sense that the Gulf states, they did sign up to the Sherat Agreement. You saw a, a lessening of influence by Qatar and Turkey. And this is proven through UN reports, through policy makers that I've spoken to. But the Emirates and the Egyptians kept, kept their level of involvement. Even while they were supporting the GNA, they kept backing Heftar with arms and weapons. So there was a real asymmetry in the amount of meddling. There was a second round where the U.S., at very high levels in mid-2016, told the Emirates to knock it off when they saw them bringing in weapons, and it did have an effect. So I've been talking about this with a lot of analysts of the Gulf, with people who know the Gulf, policymakers, and the Emirates in particular, they are sensitive to U.S. admonition, to U.S. public statements. So again, would a phone call from a senior policymaker or from Trump or the DOD suddenly turn off the airstrikes that are ongoing? I don't know, but perhaps, perhaps a stern warning and especially perhaps a public airing, you know, shedding light on this, holding it accountable. The, the panel of experts report that the UN is a great volume and we all devour it, but it's not, it, it doesn't go anywhere. And so this is why perhaps having a congressional hearing in the same way that we did with Yemen about the violations, about the arms that are coming into Libya that are killing civilians, that would have an impact because the other thing that I'm noticing is the Emirates of uh, 2014 is not the Emirates of today. They are increasingly sensitive to the how they're being perceived after Yemen. Um, they're not as emboldened. And so we're seeing some, I think, change in their, in their calculus. Of course, the, the, the tragedy of this war is that while Turkey's involvement had lessened, now the gloves are off. Now you're seeing Turkey playing a role to include armed drones, armored vehicles. So we've, we've really got a mess on, the, on our hands. And, and so, yeah, just, just to conclude, I do think the U.S. can play a unique role on the diplomatic front with these regional you know, powers. Libyans have said to me, we're sick of the U.N., the U.N. process is dead, we want the U.S. to own the peace process. That's not going to happen. I don't think we, can, we have a magic wand in terms of, of restarting the peace process. I don't think we have the legitimacy to do that. I think this, the UN is still the right path. But if the, if the regional actors perceive that we're behind the UN process, I think that, that can really energize them to get behind it. Okay, so we talked about kind of the idea that this congressional hearing is, is good to influence policy. Who makes policy on Libya and the US? Is it Congress? Is it the State Department? Is it the White House? Or is it Africa, Africa Command? For a lot of Libyans, actually, what a lot of commentary was happening is like, you know, the only people we see on the ground are AFRICOM. This is the, well, it's a mystery to me. I mean, when, we, when you figured it out, let me know. I mean, I just, I don't know. This is the problem under this, under this uh, administration. Policymaking is, is confused. It's adrift. Um, it's in some sense, because there is no higher level interest in Libya from the White House, it's it's devolved to to these institutions, the State Department and AFRICOM, who have tried to carry out a business as usual approach. Again, if you talk to the State Department, they'll they'll insist to you that you know the Trump phone call didn't change stuff. We're still, um, you know, trying to get a ceasefire. We're still behind the UN. We're you know, um, AFRICOM is still trying to play a supporting role uh, behind unifying the country to and while conducting counterterrorism. So you talk to them and there is this sort of these principles, there is this policy process in motion, but you're right. There's, there's no top level guidance. There's no 
energy behind the the process. So all of that, of course, plays to the spoilers. It plays to other countries. It provides an opening. You know, AFRICOM, of course, because and the U.S. military, because they have access to the country. This is an important um, point is that the U.S. diplomats, the State Department have evacuated. But AFRICOM had a presence in Libya. You talk to agencies like the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, and they will tell you, no, we're still engaged with civil society, with development. We've still got programs um, to help Libyans at the municipal level, to train Libyans in a variety of fields. Uh, Of course, access is a problem, but they're still bringing them to Tunisia. They've still got the funding, apparently. So the wheels are still turning. But again, the top level uh, policy direction is, is completely missing. Because I'm thinking this from the perspective of civil society that has limited resources, but wants to ensure that any engagement by the U.S. is done in a responsible way that promotes human rights. So that's that's when I'm thinking, and all my questions are very much with that focus. So who am I? Who am I advocating? You know, if I have a mission to the U.S., should I be spending my time actually at the State Department? Because every time I've been to the State Department, the messages I've received are very much it's not the decisions aren't really made here on Libya. Okay, so who should I? Who, where are the decisions made on Libya? And some of the other NGOs that are have more are more seasoned in the U.S. will say to me, "You should spend more time with with congressmen um, because they actually will be the ones that approve budgets and can try to influence where budgets go." But that feels a bit of sort of a, a convoluted route to advocacy. No, it's not convoluted. Congress should be on your on your one of your stops. Absolutely. So so they have an yeah absolutely uh, the budget allocation. Um, convening hearings, I mean, being informed on the rule of law issues, they need to hear that message. They need to hear those those voices. There's an interest there. Of course, you've got um, congressmen that are intensely interested in that. State Department, I mean, they, of course, yeah, the policy not made, but they have an important, um, you know, function. There are, there are organizations within the State Department that are looking at the prisons, that are trying to do prison reform, rule of law, justice. There's the conflict and stabilization operations. There's uh, parts that deal specifically with rule of law. So I, I, I've always encountered an interest in that. I mean, I, th- I think the State Department is is interested in it. the Pentagon. Also, again, they are not uh, contrary to stereotypes. Just interested in you know kinetics and and you know killing bad guys. They are they are sensitive to the fact that um, injustice, grievances, impunity breeds radicalization. So they want to, I think they do have an interest in holding their partners to account in terms of, you know, when we're dealing with this government, quote unquote government, we're dealing with these militias, we want to make sure that we're not, you know, creating new forms of, of radicalization. We're creating grievances that are going to come back. And so they're, they're, they're sensitive to rule of law issues as well in human rights. And it was refreshing to hear you at the hearing talking about um, some elements of rule of law. So you mentioned earlier as well this idea of using sanctions more effectively. And in this context, I'm assuming you mean U.S.-based sanctions and not just the U- through the U.N.? Yes, of course. So, so um, there was, there's been a lot of debate about the efficacy of those, those sanctions on certain Libyan uh, individuals. Of course, on some of them, it's like water off their back. They don't have assets that can be frozen. Um, I think it does, as I understand it from, from speaking to actors on the ground, when someone like Salah Badi is, is sanctioned, it does have an impact that, you know, if you behave in this manner, you do get this brand on you, whereas if you behave more responsibly, you can get more assistance. And so it has a chilling effect, perhaps. 
we do know in some cases where actors have had um, assets overseas and interests overseas, the very threat or putting sanctions on the table has has changed their behavior. There's there's instances of that. Unfortunately, in you know in the case of um, this current conflict, um, the will to do that is, I think, obstructed by geopolitics. The fact that the actors in this conflict enjoy backing by regional powers, that the U.S. has an interest in not um, antagonizing. This is the reality of it. So no sanctions against the UAE? Um, it would be hard for me to see that because um, given multiple reasons, I mean, there's there's obviously the this, the belief, again, the belief not just in the administration, but in the State Department, that the United Arab Emirates has an important diplomatic role and can somehow, you know, uh, broker uh, an off-ramp to this conflict. There's still talk about returning to the Abu Dhabi agreement, that if you sanction them, then they won't have the will or ability to rein in their proxies on the ground. Of course, there's the ties between the Emirates and the Trump administration. There's the fact that the U.S. has this other geopolitical issue called Iran, where we need the Emirates. So there's all these these calculations. So I don't um, I don't see that happening. How then? How does the arms embargo have any meaning if we if we know that it's being breached? We know who's breaching it, but they're too important to sanction. This is the great tragedy of this of this entire you know conflict, and um, it's it's been going on with impunity for so long. I, I do think more you know more U.S. focus, um, more public statements, not simply the U.N. putting out these reports, not simply a, a word from Ghassan Salama, but actual high level statements from the U.S. hearings. Again, but but I'm not sure if it's going to really you know, impact things. I think we're in this this world where the international system is broken. There's, you know, look at the Security Council. It's so, you know, divided. I think that future historians are going to look at the Libya conflict and the way the Security Council has behaved on this issue and perhaps say this, you know, this was really the sort of death knell of the, of the global order, this notion of norms that the UN can play a role. The fact that, that Heftar launched his operation when the UN Secretary General was visiting shows a clear impunity and disregard for this this institution called the United Nations. And it's, it's it has, I think it's going to have ripple effects far beyond, you know, Libya. And, and um, yeah, I'll just, I guess I'll conclude saying that the, the Security Council is where we need to start. There needs to be a resolution about the ceasefire that has been blocked. Um, of course, it's not just the Gulf states. So you've got Russia, you've got France, that I think has been playing a very dangerous double game in this conflict. So, so there's, I think the system is broken. It, re- it really is. And for us, the other element of all this is that the message that this sends to those on the ground is the opposite of that deterrent that you were talking about with the, you know, the sanction on Salah Badi having a deterrence. But it, the message is also being sent to those on the ground as saying, but if you choose your allies well, then you have impunity. Exactly. Yeah, and, exactly. And so in, in terms of an organization like ours that's working on the rule of law and trying to enshrine the rule of law, every, in fact, every step that's happened on the international scene related to Libya has pushed us further from the rule of law and actually even making the case for the rule of law because the government of National Corps, the internationally recognized one, legally not constituted in Libya, yet that is fine because it's more expedient to recognize it. And so that undermines the rule of law. You then have a situation where people are clearly committing human rights violations and, and in some instances amounting to war crimes and they are still 
allowed allowed to carry on and not only carry on but actually get phone calls from presidents um, yeah. telling them that their visions are aligned yeah. and and you I think for us you know as as LFJL we had quite a lot of hope actually from the judiciary in the US being able to do something okay. because of the jurisdiction um, I don't know if you've thought about that but whether there's a role not necessarily for the executive or the legislature in the US but actually federal judges who might seek to look at, at jurisdiction over some of what's going on in Libya, whether it's through the Alien Torts um, statute, which has been used in the past to pursue war crimes and um, torture and, and the like, you know, crimes against humanity, or even not necessarily even relying on the Alien Torts Act, but looking at just criminal law in the US at, because you're dealing with someone who has US citizenship. That's certainly the thinking of Congress. Yeah, I think, I think that avenue needs to be... Um, um, explored and pursued yeah and and um it's not just the u.s there there's a court case unfolding in france right now um so so of course judiciaries are an important uh, you know policy tool in this and um but you, you know you're absolutely right the regional meddling has given these actors top cover it's allowed it's incentivized them not to join the process they feel emboldened um, and the tragedy of this war is that it set us back. So whatever steps were happening before April 4th in terms of reining in the militias, in terms of perhaps chipping away at their, at their power has been, you know, reversed. I, I remember asking a commander from Misrata, uh, you know, well, you guys, the GNA, are trying to present this image that you're an organized, legitimate army and yet you have an individual on the front Salah body and he said you know what we've been playing we've been trying to play by the rules for four years this is war we'll take whoever we can get and so this war I think has just opened up the field to guys that you know we know are 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 bad actors right and that should be held accountable but now are given a free pass yeah and and I think I mean I obviously the example I gave is um, might seem might seem sort of looking at one side of the conflict but the the sort of the if you like the flexibility of something like the Alien Torts Act in the U.S. is that it actually you don't need to have jurisdiction over the case. It's a universal jurisdiction type of tool, and so all you need is people to come forward with a claim. And actually, you don't have to be U.S. citizen. You'd have to be based in the U.S. It's just something that is considered as a as a as a significant crime. And I and for us, it's I don't know. I think it's something that is worth um, highlighting. And I'm hoping the letter that has been passed on by um, by the Congress, I mean, you, there was a letter that was requiring investigations or asking. This was from Tom Malinowski. It was a bipartisan letter, and so yes, it, it, if you read it, um, it's um, it's very clear. It talks about the um, his accountability as a commander um, when he gave a speech where he's he's recorded saying, you know, this you should take no prisoners. So, you know, it's it's basically holding him to account um, for the actions of one of his commanders. Um, so, so I think that's um, that's absolutely significant. On, on the issue that you mentioned about um, you know people coming forward, um, I had an interesting conversation with someone who who had worked on um, Yemen, and they said the the level of of Libyan documentation of abuses and um, whether from airstrikes or or you know other forms of abuses, crimes against civilians, is not is as well documented as it is in Syria or Yemen by Libyan civil society, Libyan NGOs, and it needs to be better um, organized, highlighted, publicized. So that's an important, I think, opening for us. You know, let's let's empower Libyans to come forward and and better catalog what's going on. 
Yeah, so if you've got um, a line to USAID, you should tell them that because they actually removed um, funding of sort of civil society that's working on justice and and rule of law questions because they are prioritizing uh, municipal work and uh, training for municipal actors to the detriment to the kind of work that is needed. And that's distressing. That is very. Dis- I mean, it's very distressing. But it, it it also again sends a message to perpetrators that the priority is not accountability. Yeah. When donors, right. key donors in the country, and USAID was a key donor to, from you know 2012 to mm-hmm. 2015, to to publicly effectively state that we're reprioritizing because it is such a mess that there is so little impact you can have on rule of law that we're actually redirecting our efforts to municipal level, very almost logistical uh, support, as opposed to really building a civil society that can do the work that then is then the subject of criticism for not being done. Yeah, that's short-sighted. So I think that it's one of those eternal things, and then it sends the message saying, yeah, well, you know what, that's not important, it's not a priority for donors either, and so it it perpetuates that. As we come towards the end of this, I try to sometimes play this game where I give kind of narratives that are really boring about Libya and get you to counter them. Okay. But I feel we've addressed a few of them now, but there is a couple um, that I, I will throw at you. Um, one is this notion that Libya is not, Libya's not ready for democracy. That's the classic fallback of authoritarians. And, and I think it's, um, of course, it's it's vastly... It's woefully wrong. It's been proven wrong by, you know, by Libyans who, of course, launched this this revolution against this dictatorship. Um, you know, this this notion that somehow Libya is is, you know, fatally, you know, undermined by tribalism, by communalism, by this collection of of, you know, various autonomous city states. Um, you know, I think I think the legacy of Gaddafi's rule certainly you know, left a very divided and, and you know, fragmented, um, you know, society. But again, if you look at, you know, I think there's still a huge interest in a civil democratic state across the board. And, and I think there's been an unfortunate, you know, revisionism among some parts of Libyan society that, of course, the revolution was a mistake. You know, we need a strong man to come back. That, that narrative is, is out there. And of course, if you've been, um, you know, experience, if you've experienced harrowing violence, insecurity in your life, you want order. And of course, you find that sentiment in, in parts of the country. I certainly encountered it when I was in, in Benghazi. And it's unfortunate. Um, I think it's a matter of time to overcome that. It, it requires, you know, education that this is a sort of short-term Faustian bargain. You, you implement this particular style of rule and it, it doesn't get you what you want. It's going to come back and destabilize you. It's going to create more, you know, insecurity. Um, so again, I think this is a, you know, it's, it's a fanciful notion. It's, it's being peddled, of course, in certain, um, you know, quarters. But again, speak to the people themselves. Look at the polling that's been done. Uh, go to the municipal councils. There, That's democracy in action. There's still, I think, enormous legitimacy there at the local level for electoral government. The U.S. is only in it for the oil. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think it's it's one particular, you know, factor of of many. Uh, I think the U.S. was involved, uh, of course, for counterterrorism since I think 2014, since 2013. Uh, 
Libby, I think, you know, strategically, of course, has not been this sort of pivot state that we see in the region as, as you know, Egypt or perhaps parts of the Levant. There's an increasing awareness now of Libya's role in the great power competition between the United States on the one hand and Russia and China. If you look at AFRICOM, their, their posture, what's their strategic um, priority, it's no longer counterterrorism. It's actually deterring Russian and Chinese influence on the continent of Africa. So it's going to be unfortunate if, if Libya gets pigeonholed into this sort of chessboard politics where we're looking everywhere for Russian influence in Libya and how do we, you know, how do we counter it. But the Russian role is an important driver in U.S. policy. Um, no, I, I genuinely think the U.S., at least under the Obama administration, was there was a real interest in Libya um, before the Benghazi attack to, you know, to, to, um, you know, to realize the, the promise of the revolution that, you know, we, we owe it to these people. You had the Arab Spring moment. So I think there was a, an interest there. But again, let's, let's put the Europeans and the United Nations um, out in front of this. What is something that you're bored of hearing about Libya? I think it's this this very easy binary uh, division of the country that that occurs when you're trying to report on a country like Libya in, in a short newspaper length article where it's simply the East versus the West, it's it's the uh, army versus militias. This uh, tendency to you know to divide the country into these neat uh, neat chunks, these neat blocks, and and you go to the on the ground, and of course, it's incredibly complex. Alliances are fluid. It, there's gray areas, um, you know. So, so again, I think it's this it's this shorthand that I think hopefully we've gotten past, um, where you have secularists on the one side and Islamists on the other, and and. We didn't talk about this with no. the Congress. I'd love to see secularists in Libya. <laughs> I don't think there are any secularists. We, exactly. Well, well, one thing, one thing that um, that was interesting about this hearing, actually, before the hearing, I had I had congressional staffers asking me for information in my research on the Salafis, the Isla, Salafi Islamists in Libya that are in Heftar's camp, because they were, you know, the, the sort of supporters of Heftar in the administration in the U.S. government that were that were um, applauding him, were saying, you know, he's he's going to um, promote secularism, he's, you know, and, and he's going to fight the Brotherhood and the Islamists, and, you know, he's going to implement space for civil society. And, and, we, and I said, those staffers that followed Libya had, had picked up that, no, he's actually got Salafists in his ranks, he's empowered them, and they wanted to know more about that story. They said, you know, Fred, tell us about these Salafists that are on the other side, the so-called secularists. And that suggests that we're moving beyond this, this division where, you know, Heftar is the secularist, the other side's the Islamists. So. Well, I've, I've learned a lot in my head. I've got a little bit of a headache because I'm trying to process. I still don't know how to penetrate the U.S. system for our advocacy, but I'm working on it. Me neither. Me neither. But so, no yeah. one seems to, right? Um, but thank you so much. And, and before we sort of... Clock off. Is there any question you wanted me to ask you that I didn't ask you? No, I, I, I think we've covered it. Amazing. Thank you so, so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. If you'd like to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please let us know on our Facebook page, Libya Matters, or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. This episode was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi. It was produced by Tara Kilmiri. The people who put it all together are Linda Patumi, Elise Fletcher, Ines Maximiano, and me, Ilham Saudi. Our interns are Ben Bailey and Ahmed Madi. 
Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS. 